Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Rob Beertemple. Rob covers the Pirates for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. I am honored to be on your first 100 uh, podcasts. You are. You are top 100 for sure. And, uh, well, let's, <laughs> speaking of top 100, I have asked every single guest this at the top of the podcast, so I'm going to ask you as well, what initially got you into baseball in the first place? Into baseball writing? Oh, geez. Um, I guess, I'm, you know, like, like everybody else who, who covers this uh, sport, I grew up a fan of the game. And um, I grew up here in Pittsburgh and um, grew up kind of interested in the game in the mid-80s, which was not a particularly good time to be a Pirates fan because they were really, really terrible. But that meant I could get in for practically nothing because they were almost giving away tickets. And uh, I saw a ton of games when I was in high school. Uh, went to college, became a, a writer, and worked for the new, the school paper, well, not the school paper, the student newspaper. And they uh, said, do you want to be, how about you cover sports? And I said, sure. And that set me on the course of sports. And from there, it was just natural that uh, eventually I would uh, wander into baseball writing. As I think that if you're a sports writer, probably the, the pinnacle of it is covering baseball. I think it's the toughest beat to cover. It's the most exciting beat, the most interesting. you got to know a little about a lot of different things. And uh, it's a 24-7, 365 gig these days. So uh, it's exactly what I, uh, turns out, it's exactly what I always wanted to do. I want to ask you about the Pirates before we get into your Hall of Fame ballot as well. Let's talk about Andrew McCutcheon. Sure. He struggled in 2016, rebounded a little bit last year, but still didn't reach his MVP form from a few years ago. Right. The Pirates picked up his option this year. This is his last year of his extension that he signed several years ago. Last year, there was a lot of speculation that the that the Pirates were trying to move McCutcheon during the offseason. It didn't happen, obviously. Do you think that they're actively trying to move him again this offseason? Yes, I do. I think uh, they've probably been, uh, if you look at their M.O., just as the way they, they uh, their business model for running the franchise, it's uh, in- inevitable pretty much for every player on that roster um, that at some point he will be, uh, you know, the, the subject of, of trade speculation. I think really for, the, for McCutcheon, they started looking toward this moment a couple of, a couple of three years ago. Uh, when they sat down with this contract, and they're a team—I mean, they're a front office—that they will pay you for performance they expect to get moving forward, but they're not necessarily ones that reward you contractually for performance you've already delivered. So I think they look at McCutcheon and they see a guy who's you know entering his his early 30s, who's coming off, as you said, a, a pretty bad year followed by an okay year. Um, for most players, it would have been a pretty good year. And I think they see a guy who probably has reached his peak and is now in that slow glide toward, you know, of a little bit of decline and regression. So I think that they're going to listen to offers this winter, just as they did last winter. And uh, I think, you know, two years ago, one of the reasons for McCutcheon's terrible, let's be honest, it was an awful season, was I think he was really trying to to play his way into an extension. I mean, he's made no secret of the fact that he wants to stay here in Pittsburgh. His his wife wants to stay here in this area. He enjoys it here. Um, and he was trying to, I think, up his performance to a level where they would almost have no choice but to reward him with a longer extension. Uh, and the unfortunate reason for him, the, you know, the results weren't 
what he hoped for. And um, last year, I think the the season he had, you mentioned, you know, it was good but not great. I think there was a sense of resignation on his part that, it, you know, one way or the other, his his career is not going to end in Pittsburgh. And uh, I think he's just kind of took him a little while to get over that last season, but I think he's finally accepted that. And uh, it would be interesting to see how that might potentially affect his performance this season, whether it's in Pittsburgh or elsewhere. The defensive metrics that are publicly available crush McCutcheon. They always have, (laughs) even when he was great. And last season, at the beginning of the year, they actually planned on moving him off of center field, but then Marte got busted for PEDs and he had to switch back. What is their plan if he is on the roster? Would he be a center fielder or corner outfielder? At the end of last season, General Manager Neil Huntington said that the best team that the Pirates could could field in 2018 would have Andrew McCutcheon in center field. Um, you know, uh, consider that how you how you want. But I think that the plan eventually is still the long term plan is to have starting Marte in center field for this club. But uh, McCutcheon showed up at spring training last year. He accepted the move to to to, to the uh, the corner spot. But he made it clear at the same time that he was very unhappy about it, that uh, that it wasn't what he wanted. He thought he thinks he still can play an adequate center field. Um, we saw that, you know, that the day after uh, Marte was suspended, he made a running catch in center in St. Louis and was thumping his chest and, you know, shouting, my spot, this is my spot. So, you know, I, I think they're, at this point, management is saying, yes, we'll keep him in and his Some of the, 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 the problem, I think, with him two years ago defensively was they were playing him what he thought was out of position. He he likes to play a little deeper sometimes, and, and they didn't uh, they didn't want him to do that. Last year they gave him more free free reign to set himself up however he wanted in the outfield. Um, and I think the you know just the comfort zone for him was a little bit better. So we saw not a Gold Glove performance for sure, but we saw him step up his his defense. I think a little bit last year in center field. So I think that for for management, they're saying at this point that yes, we'll, we'll play him at center field and we'll we'll give it a go and see what happens. But I think they say that knowing at the same time that there's a good chance that he doesn't even potentially take the field for the Pirates on uh, at the end of March. Starling Marte was great for two years, then he got popped for a PD and uh, was suspended mm. last year, and he struggled before the suspension, and he struggled when he came back after. What are the Pirates expecting from him this season? Uh, he struggled in winter ball, too, so it's, uh, it's, it'll be interesting. I mean, they would obviously love for him to get back to that uh, kind of player that they've always thought he could be. They've, you know, I... They they wanted him to be more of a power guy, and he you know you look at him and you think he could he could probably hit you know fifteen twenty home runs, um, but it just really hasn't consistently materialized from him consistent kind of power. And you, know, you can speculate whether that's tied into his you know the PED use or, or, or whatever. But I, I think they're just hoping at this point to get the best version of him that they could possibly get to, whether or not that is still that power potential. I don't know if that's necessarily fair to, to ask for anymore, but certainly the defense, um, you know, that, you know, the, the speed in the outfield, the, uh, the ability to, to get decent breaks and that arm is outstanding. One of the best arms, I think in the majors still the thing, maybe even more so than anything else he has to get over sometimes is he takes those little mental vacations <laughs> out there in the outfield and uh, we'll screw up, let a ball drop in front of him, let it, uh, you know, maybe lollygag a little bit and take too long to get to a ball. Some of that comes from the confidence he has. We've seen him deke runners, you know, but by taking his time, maybe getting to a ball 
rolling in the corner and a guy tries to stretch it for a double or a triple and Marte will throw him out. I think he has such great confidence that he can try to do that a little bit, but when it doesn't work, it really <laughs> it really can look awful. So I think they need just a sharper mental focus from him. I think they need him obviously to get back to some kind we, we he has to answer the question now that he's now that he's clean, you know, what is the real starting Marte like offensively? And I think until we see that uh the Pirates, you know, there, there's going to be some questions, both with the fan base and in the front office, as to what exactly they have now with Marte. Well, let's talk about Garrett Cole. I feel like these first three guys were talking about players in regression. That's probably not a good thing for the Pirates when your three best players are in regression. <laughs> but uh, Garrett Cole was elite in 2015, and he was still very young, and it looked like he was going to become an ace and a dominant pitcher of the National League for years to come. The last couple of years, he's been okay. He's been slightly above average. He's been productive, but he has not been elite. He is not striking out as many batters that he did in 2015 either. What's happened to Garrett Cole? Oh boy, there's a lot of uh, he's he's one of those guys. You're right that you look at him and he's a little bit of an enigma because is he is he regressing? Is he uh, just? I think more so he's he's stalled maybe more than anything else. Um, he's had injury problems and he would have 15 was a good year, 16 was a bad year injury wise, 17 was a good year health wise for him, and he saw the numbers tick up a little bit. I think with him though. You know, you go back a couple of years uh, to that day that he called me in spring training and was so unhappy about the contract that they were giving him back when he was still a zero to three guy, a pre-arb guy, um, and they really didn't reward him for. You know, that was the year he, you know, he finished among the the top ten in the Cy Young voting and just uh, really, like you said, seemed poised to, to blossom into the next great pitching star. And uh, still got a, a, a contract that was above league, league minimum, but but really not too much above league minimum. Uh, last year in, in arbitration, obviously got that healthy raise, finally cracked the million dollar mark. Did it again. Uh, was, was expected to get like you know, I think what the baseball uh, trade rumors say about seven point five maybe uh, in terms of his arbitration this year. So you know he, he's making money, but I still think he feels slighted by management, and that adds to a level of. Uh, discomfort, uh, mental discomfort on his part. That, and, and he's one of those, you know, pitchers can be a little funny sometimes. They're finely tuned guys. And he, Garrett, is, is, I think, no exception to that. He's a guy that really has to be feeling well, both physically and, and mentally, to be at, at the top of his game. And he hasn't been there for the past couple of years. I think he is a guy who, when he does change teams, and again, this is another guy who I, I believe it's inevitable, sooner than later that uh, that he will be traded. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he would go to, say, the, the Dodgers or, or, the, or the Angels, uh, be back home in Southern California, and boom, turn into a 20-game winner with a, you know, a low three-something ERA. Um, he, I think he still has all that potential. It's just the circumstances, physically and mentally, haven't been quite right for him the past couple of years. Well, now I'm going to ask you about a guy who didn't regress but actually exceeded all of his projections last year in Felipe Rivero, a reliever who had one of the most unheralded dominant seasons in recent uh, closer memory. No one was talking about this guy except the uh, true diehard fantasy baseball players during the year. But Rivero was striking everybody out. He was preventing runs. He had his best season as a professional. He'd been around for a while. What did he do that was different from what he'd been doing in the years past? I think one of the biggest things with him is that he had been, he'd been, he's been told for so many years that he has closer potential, that, that he has that, that shutdown ability in his arm. 
and he has the right kind of mentality and makeup to be a closer, to be a late-inning guy. And he's a guy that really craved that. And I think there was a point maybe with Washington that um, that he was overused a little bit and was still trying to get his feet settled under him as a big leaguer and uh, didn't maybe handle the fatigue you know, as, as well as he could have. I think maybe even then that was, you know, we saw that a little bit last year with the, with the Pirates that uh, they were using quite often, and they really had to throttle back on him a little bit and give him some space to kind of regroup a little bit. I think maybe just finally being in that role that he's, you know, pointed toward for so long, feeling that he has been rewarded, and then, two, really having the, the full command and control of that changeup, working it so well with, that, with the fastball, um, you know, when I when I talked to Ray Searge, the pitching coach, one of the you know everybody wanted to talk about Rivero hitting a hundred miles an hour when the Pirates first got him, but Ray, the first thing he wanted to talk about was was the changeup and just how deadly a weapon you know that's that can be, and you know when it, when a guy hits triple digits so often and and so effortlessly it seems, you know the off speed stuff and the breaking balls can kind of get lost, but his you know secondary pitches are, are still pretty damn good. And um, I think the combination of all that, just the, the sense of that he's kind of reached the mountaintop a little bit and learning to really use his physical tools and I think settling in how to pace himself through the course of a big league season, all those factors kind of worked for him last year and he just clicked. Ray Search is a pitching coach who is he's getting guru status. He is, is known <laughs> for getting the most out of his pitchers, uh, I guess Garrett Cole excluded. What is he doing, or I guess what is his general philosophy with keeping pitchers healthy and trying to, I guess, get the best out of pitchers? I, I feel like maintaining a pitching staff's health and getting the best out of pitchers, relievers or starters, is the most difficult thing to do in baseball, and he's had a pretty good track record of it. What is he doing? I've asked a lot of pitchers that. I've asked guys who who have thrived under him, and and a few who, 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 for whatever reason, haven't, or maybe have just treaded water a little bit. But I always get the same answer for starters, and that's that that Ray, you know, pitchers, you know, all all can take different approaches, have different styles, different ways they like to be treated. Uh, some of them, you know, you have to you have to kick them in the ass a little bit to get them going. Some of them, you need to sweet talk them. Uh, some of them will like to have a little more say in, in, in pitch usage and selection. Some of them are w- more willing to sit back and, and let that be dictated more. I think Ray, one of his strengths is that he's able to get a read on guys quickly, uh, very quickly, and settles in with them and, and handles them each individually right from the start. And I, and I don't think it, it, it never comes across – there's never any phoniness in the way that he handles them. I think he really is able to get into into what makes them tick. And, and some of it is that you know, he does so much work. I've, I've seen him look at, and I've talked to pitchers who told me they've looked at video of them. You know, Ray will find dig up video, God knows where, YouTube, or from. He's even gone, I think, to family members and whatnot. Videos of these people, you know, these pitchers throwing when they were like in high school. Um, in college, uh, you know, youth leagues, maybe even, and, and really dissected stuff, you know, from years and years ago, and then brings it all along with more current video and, and finds that string and says, this is the picture you are, 
and this is how we're going to use what you are. And, and some guys, you know, some pitching coaches say, here's my mold, and, and here's what you're going to be. Um, and some guys just say, well, be who you are, but really don't give them any guidance. Ray's able, I think, to figure out what makes each pitcher tick and, and, and really is able to come up with a different plan. If that means he comes up with, you know, 12 different plans for every guy on the 25-man rotation, then that's what he comes up with. So that really, the ability to, to delve into each guy pretty in-depth and quickly see what, what can make them hit their best, I think, is, is Ray's greatest strength. Before we transition into Hall of Fame talk, are the Pirates internally expecting to contend this year, or are they already starting to rebuild? See, that's the key question. That's the key question. I was actually, before we uh, went online here, I, I, uh, I was working on a story for uh, the winter meetings, and I think you know, in their heart of hearts, general, you know, the general manager, Neil Huntington, and, and his troops there in the front office kind of know what they expect the Pirates to do next year. And so far, they haven't really tipped their hand as to which way it's going to be. Are they, last year, they pretty much just stood pat and figured, well, we have this good enough to get us back there. And it, it clearly wasn't. So this year, with everybody a year older, with a couple more of the key pieces gone, with Tony Watson gone, and, and you look at this, you know, maybe potentially Andrew McCutcheon or Josh Harrison or even maybe Cervelli or somebody or Garrett Cole gone, what do they do then? Do they, re- I, I think probably they're leaning toward peeling off some of those more veteran and also more expensive pieces and recouping prospects and, 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 a, and a major league player or two. And this year is, you know, I, they don't want to say it, obviously, because of the way all, the, all that this market has endured in the past. All the fan base here has seen the 20 straight losing seasons and the disappointments in wild card games the past couple of times. They don't want to come out and say, look, we're, you know, we're going to have to not take a step back, but maybe not take a leap forward right away yet. I, but I think that's what they're going to have to do. So I think they're trying to find a way to soften the blow is what it all comes down to, that they're going to start getting rid of some of these bigger pieces and hoping some of the guys they have down at AAA or even in, in single and double A can get here quicker than not and, and become impact players sooner than later and then, and then move forward with kind of that next wave. Um, they had hoped that Tyler Glasnow would, would would have been a big part of that next wave, the guy carrying the banner, uh, and that hasn't worked out the past couple of years. And that's one of the reasons I think there's a little bit of some beads of sweat on people in the front office because, you know, if if one if the, this guy, you know, I wouldn't say he's the crux of the whole next wave, but he was a pretty important cog. And if he doesn't work out, that really their, their margin of error shrinks even more and uh, things become a little more dicey. Let's shift over to the Hall of Fame. Tell me what your general philosophy is when filling out your ballot. Well, I've been, uh, I think, my sixth or seventh year as a Hall of Fame voter. Um, and each year I try to approach it. I wouldn't say, um, I have, you know, I'll have, just like every voter, pretty much, will have, I'll have holdovers as to who's, uh, who didn't make it in from the previous year, who I voted for. But I pretty much open it for business pretty much anew every year. I'll say, you know, I'm willing to reconsider guys I didn't vote for. Um, you know, I've heard the argument that you can't, you know, why weren't you a Hall of Famer last year if you are this year or whatever. You know, I don't necessarily look at it that way. Maybe I just didn't hear the right kind of argument. Maybe I didn't consider all the data that I should have. Um, maybe that there's an argument that I hadn't given enough weight to before. So I pretty much, you know, everybody in that ballot... I will take a fresh look at them. There's really nobody 
except for um, the PED guys, that I will pretty much be dis- predisposed toward voting against. And then uh, I'm also not one of those guys who feels that, you know, I've, I've never felt that I've had more people to vote for than I have spots allowed. The 10, you know, 10-player limit, I think, is reasonable because it should be a Hall of Fame. It should, by its very nature, be a very exclusive club. It's not a Hall of pretty damn good. It's not a Hall of you had a great season once or twice. It's the Hall of Fame. And um, even among a group of very elite players, that this should be the highest level. So I think I've come close a couple of times, eight or nine guys. I might have even hit ten once. I can't remember. But I've never sat back and said, oh, my God, I got 15 people I was going to vote for. I got to, I got to cross five names off my list. What did you think of Joe Morgan's letter? Yeah, I saw, I saw that, and I, it, I, I, was, I was interested in it. I, I, I think his sentiment matched what I've heard from a lot of Hall of Famers and just a lot of, in general, former players with whom I've talked. Um, whenever I, I, I don't – my Hall of Fame vote, you know, the ballot comes in November – but it's not like I sit down uh, for like a, you know a day, a day in, in early December and I say, okay, this is the one day I'll give to, to determining the Hall of Fame. I do it just like I do whenever I vote for you know National League MVP or Rookie of the Year or, or Cy Young or, or whatever assignment I have every year. Um, it's a it's a process that goes on throughout the course of the year. I'll be talking to people at the winter meetings. And uh, I'll probably mention, what do you think about this guy or that guy for the Hall of Fame, whether it's somebody on the ballot now or somebody who, who's coming on in a couple of years. Um, I think Joe Morgan made a lot of points that, that you know, that there's, they're, they're, you know, the former players are, are bothered by what they saw happening to, the, to their game, what they you know, rightly so considered their game um, in, the, in the maybe late 80s, early 90s, into the 2000s with the uh, – the real just rash of, of performance-enhancing drugs that, that went through the game. And they feel, in a way, kind of cheated because it tarnishes, it tarnishes their legacy a little bit. It tarnishes people who will play 5, 10, 15, 75 years from now. So it's, it's not just something that happened within a certain window in the game's history and it was over and done with. I think it's something that has a lasting effect. It, 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 it throws a... Uh, cast a shadow that are, that's going to be there for a while. And I can understand their outrage and their disappointment that, um, you know, some guys who have been pretty clearly connected to that, whether through, uh, you know, positive testing or, or whatever, or admissions of guilt, uh, you know, are still considered for the hall. So I think Joe has every right to give his opinion on it. I don't think it wasn't, it didn't to me seem heavy handed. It didn't to me seem, uh, uncalled for or unreasonable. I thought it was just another piece of uh, information that I used when I made my considerations. One of the things that you did, uh, I saw you do this this year, I don't know if you've done it in years past, but you asked Twitter users and some of your readers to send you stats or send you their advice or who they would vote for, and you took in opinions from everybody. You said you talked to people in winter meetings. You also wanted to talk to some of your readers and some of your Twitter followers as well. I'm curious who some of the players that people uh, emailed you about were. Were they Edgar Martinez or Larry Walker? Who were the players that were getting the most amount of support from your readers? Well, yeah, like you said, I think, I think it's important yeah, not to talk only to, you know, to, to the players and other writers, but I think the fans, obviously, 
and then there's a lot of people out there who are, are you know, who are fans who are not in the industry, maybe directly, but who are still pretty studious of the game. And I don't want to, you know, shut somebody out who maybe has considered uh, as a as a viewpoint or a way of looking at things that I hadn't thought of before or haven't uncovered myself. So yeah, it's something I like to do um, to try to get as many different viewpoints as possible. And, and, and put that into the mix. And I this year I got a lot of response um, for um, for Edgar Martinez, um, a decent amount for Larry Walker as well. Scotty Rowland got a lot of support from people, and he was one of those guys who uh, as I was winnowing down. I, I mailed my ballot two days ago, so as I was coming down to uh, toward making my decision, it was you know as I was crossing guy off, his was a name that hung in there for quite a while. Um, and then, and, uh, so it was nice to have that information to be able to look through um, and just get perspectives. Because I like to, I like to hear too from people who watch these guys play. Because so much of that too is, you know, for me, numbers obviously play such a huge role in determining who is a Hall of Famer and achievements. You know, whether it's awards or whatever. But I think there's also a consideration to be given to, to just that that it factor, you know, there's, who, who is a guy, you know, is he a guy that just, you know, people stuck around to watch take fourth at bat in a seven to one game? Was he a guy that, you know, you, you, you would make a point, hey, we're going to go to the game this week, well, let's go Tuesday because Joe Blow is pitching. You know, I think those kind of things also have, you know, something to say as to whether a guy is a Hall of Famer or not. And that's why I like to talk to, you know, to get input from people who pay to see the games and, and, and get their opinion on who they think is, not just beaten with the numbers, but who they think are the guys that, uh, that had that it factor. Last year, you voted for six players. You voted for Jeff Bagwell, Trevor Hoffman, Mike Mussina, Pudge Rodriguez, Kurt Schilling, and Lee Smith. Three of those players are no longer on the ballot. Two went into the hall last year, and Lee Smith aged off. Three of those players are still on the ballot. Did you vote for those three again this year? I can't tell my whole ballot because the hall doesn't like us too. I know some guys do reveal theirs, but I'm not going to go against the wishes of the hall and give you my whole ballot. But yeah, I will tell you that, yes, the guys who were my holdovers from last year, they were on my ballot again this year. And can you tell me how many people you voted for this year? Uh, boy, I could. I just have my list here somewhere. And I know this is going to sound bad. I hope she's not listening, but I think my wife moved it. <laughs> it was right. I want to say it was eight this year. Okay, so you got up to eight, which does make me think that some of the Twitter feedback that you got, some of the feedback you got on Walker or Martinez or Roland, that some of those guys, at least one, may have ended up on your ballot. Is that true? I don't want to disappoint you, but I'll tell you that no, none of those three made it to my ballot. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Well, I'm very curious to see your, your, your ballot itself once it's released, and I do appreciate you taking the time to join the podcast today. You've been listening to Rob Beertemple. Rob covers the Pirates for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Trib. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for having me.